Uh, for the rest of us, I'd ask um, if you're able to please uh, stand for the reading of our scripture taken from Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Nick Polico. I'm an associate pastor here at Trinity, but I serve at Trinity's Extension Campus in Palos Heights down the road, but I get to come up here and preach occasionally and a bit more than usual in this last season while Pastor Jeff has been on sabbatical, uh, but he will be back soon. And so last week and this week, we are doing a little, we've been doing a little mini-series on Ephesians 6 and on the armor of God. So as we turn to this passage again, would you pray with me for God's help? Lord, it's easy to look at the world and to see that evil is real. Whatever kind of worldview we're coming from and whatever we think about spiritual warfare, we see a country like Haiti that uh, the team from this church has been serving in and how a place that is so on its own rich in natural resources because of human corruption has become so stripped and barren and filled with desolate poverty. We wake up to news this morning of a second mass shooting in 24 hours here in this nation that boasts of itself is the greatest nation ever in the history of the world, and we mourn. And even here, we sit in a beautiful, pleasant worship space for which we are grateful, in the air conditioning, in a lovely town, and yet we are informed in your word that we are even now engaged in a, a spiritual battle that we are not strong enough for on our own. So help us to be sobered by this passage to, 
internalize the warning that is given here, yet so as to take our stand in the strength that you provide. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. I, uh, last week, asked you what sort of images come to mind when you hear the phrase spiritual warfare. And, you know, we observed that for a lot of people, it might be graphic, gory images from Hollywood movies, you know, The Exorcist or the Amityville horror. If you are thinking in more like biblical terms, you might think still of the most kind of obvious manifestations of dark spiritual activity that we're told about in the stories of Jesus in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. You know, you can think of the, the man who's living in a cave and cutting himself and chained up. Or you might think of the opening chapters of Scripture when the serpent comes and without possession or head spinning or anything like that, just deceives with his cunning questioning of, of the goodness of God. Did God really say? Or you might think of this passage. This is a really famous passage about spiritual warfare, and one of the most the images we latch onto the most is this image of fiery darts coming in. And what I invited you to last week and what I want to invite you to again is not to throw away any of those biblical images that are in the Bible, so we should embrace them, but to hone in on this particular image from this passage that we don't tend to give much attention to, and it's the image of wrestling. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we said that this word, this language that Paul uses of wrestling is a word that would have called to mind soldiers locked in hand-to-hand combat. I have three little boys, and right now they're in a phase where they like reading books about knights, like, you know, Arthur and St. George and whatnot. And there's one book we have called The Kitchen Knight, because it's a knight who goes from working in the kitchen to glory on the, the battlefield. And it, near the end of the book, he has to conquer this other knight called the Red Knight, who's the most difficult foe he's faced. And the description of their battle reads in part like this. Then they put their spears into their rests and came together with all the might they had. And they smote each other with such force that both knights fell to the ground, and all within the castle thought their necks had been broken. But they rose and put their shields before them and ran together like two fierce lions. And they battled till it was past noon. Again and again they came face to face, locked in struggle. You know, I don't know if if you're into Narnia, if you've seen the Prince Caspian movie and towards the end of it, there's an image of of, a battle that is is something like this. That is the picture of spiritual warfare we're given here, that it's like this in-your-face wrestling match where the opponent is breathing down our neck. And we have all sorts of reasons for not really fully believing this is true, or at least not wanting to and not giving our attention to it. Some of it is because we just breathe the air of materialism. I don't mean like shopping too much, but a view of the world that chalks up everything to a mere physical explanation. And it's worth noting that, you know, just the vast majority of cultures throughout history have not held to such a view. And so even though we might be tempted by that, it might be good to ask 
whether or not, you know, some, the 90% of others are onto something. We can't, we can't sort of give a full apology for a spiritual view of the world. But even for those of us who, who believe, at least nominally, that there is a spiritual battle, sometimes we're afraid that we'll sound a little bit kooky. You know, because there are Christians who maybe go swing a little bit too far in the other direction and are trying to cast demons out of the washing machine when it's not working. We don't want to be like that. We also have a theological reason for not giving perhaps adequate attention to this reality. And that's that we believe in the the reformed stream of Christianity that this church is a part of that the Bible teaches that those who have a true saving faith in Jesus are are never going to be lost. If you belong to God, it's not as though the devil can steal you back. And yet we have enough warnings in Scripture to know that those who make a profession of being a follower of Jesus can potentially do a Judas thing. And be led astray and be proven not to have belonged to God actually. But even for those who do, we are warned that tremendous spiritual damage can be inflicted upon us if we let our guard down. Joel Beakey was a pastor and professor in Michigan at a, a school there and a church there, has a book about spiritual warfare where he says, about the devil that he can confidently assault even the holiest believers. And if he can't keep believers out of heaven, he will do what he can to keep heaven out of believers here on earth. As one other writer has stated, if not to extinguish their light, yet to eclipse their luster. If not to cause a shipwreck, yet to raise a storm. If not to hinder their happy end, yet to disturb them on their way. And so even though it might be difficult to believe when we're sitting in this quiet, pleasant room with stained glass windows and the lull of the air conditioner and a pleasant afternoon before us, we are told in the Word of God that there is a battle that we are engaged in and it is in our face and we have to, we have to acknowledge it. And so we're going to look again at what we are told the nature of this battle is and what it means to put on the armor. And so, and that's, that's all we're going to do. There's two things. The nature of this, the spiritual assault that we face, the spiritual wrestling, wrestling match, adding a bit to what we said last week, and the nature of the armor that we put on, what it means to put it on. So we said last week that we face a, a scheming spiritual assault. And we're not going to totally recapitulate everything. But we, were, we looked at the fact that this word, devil, means accuser or slanderer. And we talked about the fact that the way the devil wrestle, wrestles God's people and attacks us is primarily through slander, through accusations, through slandering God. God is not really good. He doesn't really have your best interests at heart. Or by slandering us. Look at you. How could God love you? Or by putting slander against others into our hearts. Look at that worthless person over there. And we said that this sort of attack takes place in the everyday, ordinary relationships that every single one of us 
finds ourselves in because this instruction about spiritual warfare comes immediately after Paul's instructions about family life, about husbands and wives and children, and about work life. And so it's not just when we're facing cancer or some sort of horrible mental illness or act of violence, some sort of apparently terrible thing that the battle rages. It's in just our regular, everyday life and relationships that little bits of slander against the goodness of God, against ourselves and against others, little seeds can be sown that can grow into roots that split the foundation of the house in part. But there's one other aspect of this sort of scheming spiritual assault. I say scheming because we're taught, we're, we're, the language Paul uses is the schemes of the devil. You know, that he's cunning. It's like playing chess. And that is the temptation to rationalize sin. You know, to rationalize destructive behavior. What do I mean by rationalization? If you back up to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, we read one of these just stark warnings that is, it sort of takes your breath away. Where the Apostle Paul says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What is the Apostle Paul trying to counteract with those words. He's trying to counteract rationalization. The tendency to say our salvation, our eternal life, our forgiveness of sins, it's not earned. It's a gift of grace by faith, which it is. God is a merciful, forgiving God, and so therefore it doesn't matter how I live because God will forgive because that's his job. And the apostle says, no, don't rationalize sin that way. Don't let anybody deceive you with empty words. If you live like an enemy of the kingdom, you're not a member of the kingdom. This is, you know, and rationalization, it's something every single one of us has been an expert in. I was listening, I was on vacation and I was listening to some uh, of the Dave Ramsey podcast, you know, the finance guy. Now think what you want about Dave Ramsey. Maybe you love him, maybe you don't. He can be a bit brash. Sometimes maybe he's a bit too cut and dry. But as far as talking to a person like me who can really easily rationalize and not being as careful with my money as I should be, he has some good advice. And there was one call that uh, <laughs> a man called in who sounded like he was probably about 30 years old, and he was a dentist. So he was a dentist, but he was, he was a young dentist. And so what happens on the show is people call in, and they talk about the financial mess they've gotten themselves into, and they, they have, then Dave Ramsey gives them advice on how to get out of it. So this guy calls and explains that he had, has $400,000 in student loan debt, as well as a mortgage and a car. And, you know, Dave Ramsey is just, you know, sort of, he says, with his little southern drawl that I really like, you have $400,000 of student loan debt and you just went and bought yourself a house and a car. You know that was dumb, right? And the guy says, and the guy bought the car was a Lexus, by the way, a brand new financed Lexus. And the guy says, 
well, I needed a car. (laughs) Dave Ramsey says, yeah, you needed a car. You didn't need that one. You got a car that said, look at me, I'm a rich dentist. But you're not a rich dentist. You're a broke dentist. And you're only ever going to be a broke dentist unless you stop being so stupid with your money. That's rationalizing. Well, I need a car. (laughs) Sure, you don't need a $60,000 car to impress people at the red lights. Rationalizing. We all have done this. And sometimes people's rationalizing totally upends their life. Like the woman I know who divorced her godly, loving husband because she didn't find her marriage fulfilling. This is not a bad guy, not an abusive guy, not a guy who wasn't providing. And, you know, the calculus she used was, God wants me to be happy. I'm not happy in my marriage. Therefore, God blesses me leaving. It's rationalizing. Or the young Christian who once told me, He was thrilled because he had gotten a job under the table so he would be able to keep all the money and not pay taxes on any of it. And when I sort of gently encouraged him, you know, nobody likes paying taxes, but you know we're actually told in the Bible not to evade taxes. He said, oh, but I know God has given me this job. The way it all came together, it's just perfect. I know it's from. It's rationalizing. It's saying, well, if God is in control and I got this job and it seems it must be from him, so he must be giving me a pass on what he clearly commands. Where, are you, where do you tend to rationalize addictive, destructive, harmful, sinful behavior? Because we, we can all do it. And it's in that place, at least in part, that the battle for your heart is, is being waged. Where do you rationalize? Well, I can talk poorly about this person because she, she deserves it. And I just need to get it off my chest. It doesn't matter if I kill her reputation. Right? So that's the nature. That's another angle on the nature of the spiritual assault, the cunning spiritual assault that we're facing. The attempt to rationalize. Think of Jesus in the wilderness facing the devil who says, if you are the Son of God... Tell these stones to be bread. That's rationalism. It's rational. You're hungry. You can do this. You've already obeyed God. You've come out into the wilderness. Rationalization. And so what does it mean to put on the armor in order to defend ourselves against the accusations of our enemy and against our own propensity to rationalize and to succumb to the temptation to rationalize? And we have all these different pieces of armor that Paul talks about here, and we can't really go piece by piece through any of them. But I think as we look at the armor as a whole, we could sort of bullet point the nature of the armor by saying it consists of two things. It consists of faithfulness and trust. By faithfulness, I mean our own faithfulness, our own integrity, and trust in the Lord and in His provision, His salvation, His deliverance. So where do I get this this, uh, idea that our own life of faithfulness is partly in view. I get it from verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now what does that mean? To fasten on the belt of truth, to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Because what it could mean and what some interpreters have said it means is that the belt of truth, that's God's word. 
And the breastplate of righteousness is the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us by faith, which is a technical theological way familiar to some of you but maybe new to others of saying that Jesus lived the life of faithfulness and love to God that we failed to live. And then he went to the cross to take our sins away. And when we are connected to him by faith, his righteousness counts as ours. And that is absolutely true, and I believe that. But I don't think that's the only thing, or necessarily even the main thing, that Paul is talking about when he talks about the breastplate of righteousness. And one way when we're wrestling with a a phrase like this to try to get some light shed on what it means is to ask, well, does the biblical writer use this sort of language anywhere else in a way that might bring some more clarity to what he means here? And he does. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, the same writer, the Apostle Paul says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate. Faith and love. Meaning this includes not only a status that we receive from Christ, although it's legitimate to include that, but it includes the the life of love and of faithfulness that Christ works in us and which is actually lived out. It's meaning that we, we determine to live a life of integrity as disciples. We decisively decide we are going to live in accordance with what we, we say we believe. You can think also of 2 Corinthians 6, 6-7. through The Apostle Paul here is defending the ministry of him and his ministry associates, and he says, he describes themselves as living in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. And just to clarify, especially after the day we've had in America, weapons of righteousness, he means things like peace. (laughs) He's not talking about picking up a club or a sword. But the apostle seems to be talking about a, a life of embodied integrity as disciples. But it's not only that. It's also a life of trust because he, he talks about the helmet of salvation. That verse in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 that I read goes on. It reads, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So, so putting on the helmet of salvation means putting on trust appropriating, standing in in our trust in God as our deliverer. Our deliverer from our own sin and from judgment and our deliverer from spiritual attack. Psalm 140 verse 7 says, O Lord, my Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have crowned my head in the day of battle. So what does this actually mean? What does it look like? Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, Uh, in reflecting on this passage, talks about the famous story of the disciples in the boat with Jesus. This great storm comes up. Jesus is asleep. And the disciples say, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? 
And after Jesus stops the storm and stills the waves, he says to them, where is your faith? And he doesn't say, why don't you have any faith? He's assuming they do have faith, but he's saying, where is it? Like, get it out, use it, put it on. And that's the sort of image that we have here. Like, you have salvation in Christ, now get it out and use it and put it on. I, uh, I had my bike stolen a few weeks ago out of my garage. And I was really sad about this because it was a really nice bike. It was a Cannondale, which is sort of like a Cadillac of bikes. When my wife and I lived in Pennsylvania, we went from two cars to one because we could get away with it there. It was a small little urban community. And when we sold the one car, I used part of the money to buy that bike. Like, I sold a car for this bike. It was so nice. The thing weighed like an ounce. You just glide across the road with it. I've never been on a bike like this in my life. And we had lived in sort of inner city neighborhoods for a number of years in St. Louis and then in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and been used to having to be really vigilant. You leave something on your porch for three seconds, it's gone. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's an empty bottle. Somebody is snagging that thing or recycle it. And we were sort of lulled to sleep by the serenity of suburban life in Crestwood. And so I just, our garage door, the automatic uh, mechanism of it broke. And so you have to lock it manually from the inside. I just was never doing it. And then I went into the garage one day to get my bike to ride around with the kids, and it was not there. Somebody had apparently noticed it, had apparently noticed me just walking to the garage and just lifting it right up without a key, and has gone and taken it in the middle of the night while we all slept inside, or maybe in the daytime. I don't know. The point is, now I lock the garage door, but it doesn't do me any good in getting my bike back. I needed to have locked the door before the thief came. And the reason I say this is because the language of this passage is language that tells us to put on the armor and then stand ready for the attack. You see again, there's this language, be strong in the Lord, put on the armor that you may be able to stand. And then down in uh, verses 13 and 14, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. The point is, the apostle saying, get your armor on and be in your defensive posture so that when evil comes, you are ready. Not wait till evil comes and then say, quick, where's my armor? When the fiery arrows are flying through the air, you're not going to have time to get all this stuff on. And so we're told before it's obvious that evil is attacking. You know, before we see a church splitting apart, before you see a marriage disintegrating, before you see yourself being lulled away toward a sin you never thought could possibly get a grip on you, put on the armor and take your stand. I had never known before this week in, in studying and reflecting on this passage that the Roman soldiers of Paul's day 
in battle would sometimes utilize something called the testudo formation. They had these great big shields, right? I mean, they weren't like these little round things or these large kind of body-sized shields that they had. And they would huddle together in a little kind of cube. And everybody would put their shield in a particular place so that they were entirely enclosed by their shields together in case fiery arrows were coming. So they could deflect them before either, you know, retreating or advancing toward the enemy. And what that image means to me, this this picture of soldiers with their shields locked together in formation, is that we have to understand part of the life of our church to be, so to speak, locking our shields together to protect one another. We are not simply people trying to recruit more bodies so an organization can grow. We are not simply people who like each other, though hopefully we are, who uh, are getting together because it's a little bit encouraging. We, are, we have this call to defend ourselves and one another. And so what does that mean concretely? Really concretely. Paul shows us at the end of the passage. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. If we actually believe this battle is real, we will pray for ourselves and for one another. And prayer, I know it is difficult, really, and it's almost sort of like a trite thing to say from a pulpit. If we really believe this stuff is true, we'll pray, and I know none of us really do pray that much. Like, how many sermons <laughs> have you heard like that? How many times, and it, it almost feels like, like, why even keep saying this? But what if, for a start, even if you again find yourself, as so many of us have, sort of getting caught up with our day-to-day activities to the point that we're distracted and we think our biggest problem is that we got overcharged on our cell phone bill or something. What if at least on Saturday night and on Sunday morning as we started to think about preparing for church, we remembered Sunday morning is a wrestling match. Whether we realize it or not, whether we feel it or not, it's a wrestling match. It doesn't matter that there's nice red velvet pews we're sitting on. There's a wrestling match happening. And we were simply to pray in light of that. Lord, help us tomorrow when we gather. Help us to be attentive to you and not just to to coast through a service. Lord, have mercy on whoever is preaching, who is a frail, feeble, fallen person. Have mercy. Help them not to be distracted while they're preparing. Help them not to blab some sort of nonsense that isn't actually a faithful reflection of your word. Help them to communicate clearly and help us to receive it. Have mercy, Lord. If we begin to view our gatherings, you know, our corporate, kind of the central event of our life together in terms of this sort of wrestling match. It might be a first step towards embodying this idea of sort of taking this formation together through all of life. We are told that we are engaged in a battle. We are, but that God has given us armor 
so that we can withstand. And when we feel that everything is okay, that there's no attack, that is when we most need to summon up our armor and to be ready. Because once the arrows are flying, there's no time to get dressed properly. We take some time each week after we've reflected in the sermon to do some confessing of our sins together. And so I'm going to give you a minute to pray quietly, and then I will close that time for us. And I know for me at least what I have to confess to the Lord is the extent to which I view so many lesser wrestling matches in my life as though they were my biggest problem and they are not. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ crucified for our sins and risen from the dead, freeing us from him who had the power of death. And for those of us perhaps who've walked in the Christian life as disciples for years and have just grown used to it, Um, Please wake us from our sleep. Help us to be alert and to be vigilant and to take our stand against the evil day together in the strength that you provide. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, Romans 5, verses 8 through 9, gives us this good news. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Thanks be to God.